I'm so excited for you to hear today's episode featuring Khalid Kume. She is an educational genius. I'm so excited that I was able to share a room with her when I did my teaching in New York City. She currently teaches 10th and 11th grade social studies and ESL in New York. She worked with the International Rescue Committee of New York and New Jersey. Her master's comes from Teachers College. She's currently back there again, pursuing an EDM in international education and development with a concentration in languages, literacies, and cultures. I cannot wait for you to hear this insightful conversation with Kalud. Lions, and I love helping school communities envision bold possibilities, take brave action to make those dreams a reality, and sustain an inclusive, anti-racist culture where all students thrive. I'm a former teacher leader turned instructional coach, educational consultant, and leadership scholar. If you're a leader in the education world, whether you're a principal, superintendent, instructional coach, or a classroom teacher excited about school-wide change like I was, you are a leader. And if you enjoy nerding out about the latest educational books and podcasts, if you're committed to a lifelong journey of learning and growth and being the best version of yourself, you're going to love the Time for Teachership podcast. Let's dive in. I am so excited to introduce to you my former colleague and amazing friend today on the podcast, Kalu Kime, who is literally one of the most inspiring, motivating people that I have just the privilege of having in my life. Um, she introduced to me this idea of marigolds, which she credits Cult of Pedagogy's Jennifer Gonzalez as, as sharing, but just this idea that um, you know marigolds are really have these roots that are healthy and nurturing and giving. And also, you know, by giving we grow and this two-way relationship of just thriving and growing together, I think epitomizes just my experience of my relationship with Kalud. So I am so excited to introduce to you today, um, Kalud and her brilliance. And I'm just going to actually let her introduce herself in the way that she would like to just tell us a little bit about her journey to education, um, her background, her research, all the things that, um, you know, bring her excellence into this space today. Thank you so much, Lindsay. You are so awesome. And you are definitely a marigold in my life. Um, so I appreciate that. Um, I will, yeah, I'll go ahead and introduce myself. So um, like you said, my name is Khulud Kame, and um, I am living that hyphenated life where I am an Arab Filipina American. Um, I was born in Brooklyn, uh, but then I spent my K through six years, so my elementary formative years in Amman, Jordan. Um, and then I moved back to the United States to do seventh through 12th grade. Um, and then just ended up staying here for university. Um, so right now, I am a 10th and 11th grade social studies teacher in New York City. Um, in another life, though, I used to work with the International Rescue Committee in New York and New Jersey in different capacities, um, started out interning with them, and, and then realized more and more that I wanted to get into the education field. Um, and then let's see what else. Yeah, education was never really, I didn't know that this would be where I would end up, but um, I, my undergrad was in international relations. I had a stint in divinity school thinking I would get my master's in theological studies, 
But now, um, after getting my MA in TESOL with a K-12 certification from, uh, from TC, from Teachers College, I'm working full-time and also back as a graduate student, yet again, um, pursuing my EDM in international education and development. Um, and I'm concentrating on the field of languages, literacies, and cultures. Awesome. There is so much there that you have accomplished already. And it is so impressive. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I think one of the things that is really exciting about just our conversations that we've had about education is kind of our like big thinking or our big dreaming about what education could possibly be. Um, and so I think that's kind of the question I want to start with. What's the, the big dream that you hold for the field of education? If you could kind of dream it into being, um, what would that actually look like? Yeah, I um initially when I first thought about this question, my my first answer was equity in education, right? Like that's something that I think so many of us today are striving for. But then I really thought a little more deeply and I was like, well, for me, what's my big dream for education? And it is equity, but I I really I really love this emphasis on multilingual learning. Um, because I think that, you know, language is something that I'm really passionate about. And I think it needs to be brought into the conversation a lot more. So, um, so many incredible people are doing anti-racist work and talking about decolonization of education and pedagogy. Um, and I think that language needs to be a part of the conversation on equity, um, where language diversity is really celebrated and incorporated in the schools, um, both from bottom to top and top to bottom, um, because there's so much history that we can talk, you know, ad nauseum about, about language, linguistics, and colonialism, um, because we still see today without, without even really recognizing it sometimes unless we pause the colonial leg legacy um, on our curriculum and um, you know English. English is a very dominant thing right so I know there's discourses on globalization global English and and this idea that you know English is supposed to be good because you know it expands global markets and it enhances um, economic expansion but all of this is really at the expense of people's languages and diminishing them. And then, you know, going, like you said, from these big ideas to more specific ones, I see it being diminished in my students. Um, so that's my big dream is equity in education um, through multilingual education. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's how I would really like frame this conversation. Awesome. I, I love that. And I, I wanted to pick up on a couple of things you said there about just even colonialism and recognizing, just being aware of and calling out and naming um, things like colonialism or things like just the absence of um, multilingualism or language in our conversations about equity. Um, too often it is absent. I'm glad you, you brought attention to that. So that makes me think about the mindsets that we have as educators and you know, as ways that we think about how education should look or how it's historically been. So what mindset shifts do you think are really required for educators and educational leaders to really buy into and, and the things that are really, that you see are necessary in order to achieve this dream or work towards that dream? Yeah. Um, and I, I think, and I, I, I think that, you know, in this case, we're talking more and maybe the audience is more of the American audience. Um, so we're primarily focused here on the United States. But I think that's part of the part of the issue, right, is that we are so America centric. Um, but I think a major mindset mindset shift, sorry, is to um, 
is to think more globally, more internationally, and to, to really look beyond ourselves, both at the individual level and as a country, because there's so many great things happening out there um, all around the world, um, on all the continents that we need to be more aware of. Um, language education policy, language practices, um, and a major mindset shift that we need to think about is is our own language ideologies. This is something that I've been really getting into lately. So, you know, an ideology is a belief. And so what is our belief on languages um, as educators, especially? Um, and before I, I enrolled in my program, I really, you know, I come from the ESL world um, with my first master's degree. And so it, the whole idea was, you know, to help students getting to speak English. And this is part of the American assimilation narrative. And, you know, and I get that. And I, I worked in some capacities doing um, the State Department mandated um, cultural orientation for recently arrived refugees. But the more I started thinking about it, and the more I started thinking even of the history of ESL is how Western English dominated it is. And how that in and of itself is problematic and how we need to rethink that. So even calling the students English language learners is so diminishing for them because they have other, other amazing capacities that some people truly don't have that I don't have, you know? Some of them, some of them speak more than four languages. Um, and so that's a shift. That's a shift from this monoglossic language ideology that is maybe so deeply embedded in this education system that maybe we need to have more critical approach to it. Um, and so that's more of a heteroglossic perspective and language ideology where we see that multilingualism should and can be normalized. Um, my advisor calls it the multilingual habitus, which I really love. Um, Carol Benson, she's amazing. Um, so I'm really trying to adopt this language in my own life and work, but a multilingual habitus where, um, you know, it's, it's drawing on people's strengths and recognizing multilingualism as really an asset. So even, even not using the language majority versus minority, like, oh, these are minority languages, you know, because sometimes the numbers, the numbers don't point to that. So instead adopting language like dominant versus non-dominant, or even calling um, things not minority, but minoritized to emphasize that this is something that's happening to them. So really that's, I mean, in some, the mindset shift, um, it has to be a lot of self-reflection and looking beyond the self on so many different levels. Oh my gosh, there are so many things in there that I think we could talk about for days, but I think one of the things, two of the things that really stuck out to me is one, that non-US centric idea. And that I think is, is a huge, huge piece paired with that idea of that assimilationist narrative, that idea that quote unquote Indian boarding schools, right, removed like people from their families, removed their hair from their heads, their clothing on their bodies and their language from their tongues, right? And, and said, that this is what it means to be American. And I think as educators, we need to recognize like that is the history of what it has been in, in the United States, that in, in addition to so many more uh, examples. But I mean, that's, that's what we have um, grown from. Like our education is rooted, our system is rooted in that assimilationist narrative. And so 
stopping our language from problematizing students because they're English language learners, quote unquote, um, as opposed to seeing, I love that phrase, multilingual habitus, and like seeing the assets, the brilliance that is required to be multilingual, like that many of our teachers are not, right? I myself am not. And so I think that's a huge, huge shift. Thank you for sharing that. Um, when we talk about, you know, like, how do we make this happen? So we have the mindset shift. We're like ready to, you know, embrace um, non-US centric perspectives. We're ready to embrace the multilingual habitus. Like, what does that actually look like in terms of a teacher or an educational leader, um, you know, taking action towards that dream of, of that multilingual habitus or multilingual education being done in a way where students are thriving in schools like yeah, I, I get frustrated by this a lot because it's that action step, right? It's like, okay, what can I do? Um, and sometimes I feel like I need to be in 50 different places at once, but then I realize, well, we're spread too thin. Let's focus and be more effective focusing like one thing at a time. Um, but um, I feel like now in my role as both a practitioner, as an educator, someone deeply devoted to their students, but also someone who is a perpetual student, kind of at this point, a perpetual graduate student. <laughs> it's never ending, but you know, that's fine. <laughs> um, but you know, as a practitioner, I get really frustrated in certain situations where I, you know, in my coming across different, different pieces of literature that have fantastic ideas, I wanna implement them. And then also as a graduate student, I become equally frustrated when the literature doesn't take into account educators, like an actual, um, actual educators' perspective and voices um, when they make recommendations. So, so then I think about actions and I think actions need to be mindful of both perspectives. Um, and really as educators, the work starts with ourselves. And I know that this is something that so many people talk about and I think it's easier said than done, right? But how do you challenge these preconceived notions, your, your ideas, your biases, and, um, and especially when it comes to language. Again, something I'm so passionate about because I know that there's so much amazing work that is going on with anti-racist work um, and challenging those preconceived notions. But I really, I would love to challenge others to think about their own biases with language. Um, so what actions can be taken? What can people do in their schools? Um, I think at a school level, maybe engaging more in the small steps. Um, I know that a few of us started a book club, I think was it two years ago at this point? Yeah, a book club, um, monthly and engaging in really, really thoughtful readings. And then sometimes not thoughtful because we needed a break. <laughs> um, but you know, uh, when you learn something, running PDs, right? Um, encouraging your colleagues to attend conferences with you, uh, giving each other critical and meaningful feedback um, on your curriculum, on your pedagogy, asking people um, what they think, being vulnerable in that sense. And I know that when we worked together, I so admired you and your work, Lindsay, that, that you were probably the first person I always went to <laughs> um, for that kind of meaningful um, exchange and feedback to take actions, to have these mind shifts that we're talking about. Um, but then I think comes the question like, okay, and, and this, is, this is the frustration that I was talking about earlier where, you know, I think there are so many of us educators who are doing the work, putting in the time, learning about ourselves, um, how we can be better, how we can do better, um, but then how, how do we make the next jump, right? Because 
a lot of these issues are, they're systemic. How do we challenge that, you know? Um, I think in politics, people say that that jump, next jump is, you know, with active citizenship um, and civics part, civic participation. And one, of, one example is voting, um, among many, many other ways of civic participation. But I would love to see more educators at the table doing work with policy discussions um, and being in positions of power. Um, I find it really challenging to accept when there's a person in power in the education world who's never taught a day in their life. Um, you know, and, and then I also see many educators who have so many fantastic ideas who want to stay in the classroom because that's the kind of people that we are. We love our students. We love our work. Um, I have those moments where I'm like, I don't want to leave. Um, <laughs> but is there a way to do both? So um, having that balance, but being a doing the work ourselves and being a part of that conversation, that larger conversation. Um, I think that that is how a lot of that mindset shift can really start to come to fruition. I love that because I also think it speaks to um, my research that I talk about all the time of like shared leadership and thinking about how do we make sure that teachers are at that decision-making table in schools, but also beyond. And, and like you were saying, like in political positions and policy-making positions, and I'm almost thinking too, you know, how, how about students and family members as well who are multilingual to be in those positions of power as well, shaping policy and, you know, thinking about those recommendations for schools individually as a community, but then also beyond. Um, and I think that's, that's an incredibly powerful shift when we can shift from like the individual work to the systemic work. So I appreciate you sharing that. Um, I think a lot of the teachers that I talk to and, and the questions that they ask of me is like, okay, tell me a strategy, <laughs> like give me a strategy to use. And while I think sometimes that oversimplifies the, the problem um, or, or the approach, I guess I, I should say, to addressing like how, how we create spaces for multilingual students to thrive, um, I think it's also something that is tangible, like you're saying, and making sure that, you know, what we communicate is like practical for educators. Um, what are some of the key concepts that you've learned about or the particular strategies that you've learned about in your research or in, in used in your practice that you would recommend that are maybe those, you know, top strategies or recommendations that teachers could take and apply in practice? Yeah, I, I love that you bring that up, Lindsay, because I know I I sometimes am just, you know, like I want to open a blog and find a strategy immediately that I can implement tomorrow. Um, and sometimes I do find amazing strategies, you know, and sometimes, sometimes I don't, but, um, you know, it's, it's definitely a combination, right, of mindset that then organically translate in, translates rather into a practice that we have um, and also knowing some strategies, right? Um, so, for me, I think, um, you know, we hear funds of knowledge, we hear removing deficit perspective, um, but what does that actually mean when you implement it as a strategy? Like we can believe that as much as we want, but then if we don't do that in the classroom, it, it kind of doesn't mean as much. Um, but I really personally love allowing students to use their home language. Um, I completely understand and, um, and honor the fact that some educators, actually not some, but many educators were so, were so pressured by standardized testing, right? Because our job is to help the kids. Um, we want to get them to a place where they are, you know, taking, I can just also talk about 
the issues with assessment for a while, but I won't um, <laughs> because, you know, our multilingual learners, uh, I'm not going to use English language learners, but our multilingual learners, they're accommodations, right? They have accommodations. So they're an afterthought. The test is not designed for them. So there's, there's inherent problems there. But um, as much as we want to, you know, help them, sometimes it, sometimes before they can make that jump, um, we need to, we as teachers need to also honor their home languages a little bit more. Um, and telling them, you know, yeah, like now is a great time if you want to use it, whether, you know, jotting down ideas on paper, um, or if, you know, some kids are lucky enough where there are other students in the classroom who share the same home language, allowing them space and time for that. Um, and also really being mindful of liter literacy practices, right? So, um, you know, one area that I really focus on is the Arabic language and recognizing that whether because of interrupted formal education in some of these um, contexts and countries um, or because you know Arabic is diglossic in nature, so that means that there's uh, there's like a standardized Arabic, and then there's also different varieties. And I will not call them dialects; I call them varieties and different languages of Arabic. Right. So um, you know, for me myself, I can write in standard Arabic, but when it comes to my home language, uh, the Levantine variety of Arabic, it's not standardized. So it's mostly transliterating um, orthographically what, whatever is like coming out of my mouth. Um, so sometimes students have different experiences with literacies even in their home languages. So allowing opportunities for drawing or, or speaking, you know, it doesn't, pen to paper is really hard for students sometimes and we don't, we don't pause to think about that. So my biggest strategy, I guess, in some that I would, I would give is, um, you know, allowing space and time and recognition of home language and really getting to know the students' home languages because I see so many, so many, um, you know, papers that come from the system that label their language. Like, oh, this student speaks Spanish. This student speaks French, Arabic, uh, Bengali. But what does that actually mean? Because that's not, that, that oftentimes is not even their home language. Um, you know, I've, I've seen Wolof a little bit more um, for some of our Senegalese students, a little bit more now than, rather than just French. But there are so many languages in Senegal. You know, Wolof is the lingua franca there, but it might not be our students' home languages. And so we need to do a better job in learning that. Um, and maybe with needs assessments, finding that out, finding out their skill sets there, and then using that. Um, because again, just because they don't speak English doesn't mean that our students are disadvantaged. Uh, we need to just, we need to eliminate that belief. Um, and we can learn from them. Oh my gosh, I love that you said that. <laughs> like, I think, you know, I think so much of this is I often say that standardized curriculum or standardized practices are, you know, difficult because there is this exchange, right? There's this exchange between um, what our students teach us and what we are able to teach our students and the fact that we're in partnership and learning together, I think is a really important point. And I love that you highlighted 
you know, this is what it looks like to do this in a particular space. You get to know your students, you get to ask those questions, you get them to tell you in their own words, you know, what their home language is and not just trust that what is given to us on paper it is what it is. Um, and I, I think that's really important in terms of just the partnership that we have with our students. And, and again, going back to that mindset of we're together and it's going to be responsive to the needs of our students and not just, I'm going to do teaching in this one way. I love that you use the phrase, um, and I'm paraphrasing here, but I wrote down something like the tests, we accommodate students, uh, multilingual students for tests, the test is not designed for them. And I think that's really important when we're framing and grounding our work in curriculum and assessments that we design, are we grounding it in an approach that involves all students and enables all students to be successful, or are we just accommodating and adapting something that was not designed for all students? And so I just wanted to highlight that those I think are really important points. Um, and I love that you also talked a little bit about your own students. And so you teach in a school where all students are multilingual. Um, so we, we taught in that same school together and it was um, beautiful what we can learn from our own students. And I, I would love if you could just share maybe a particular either lesson or strategy or even student individual student story that highlights you know, the success that we can have when we thoughtfully design those learning experiences um, with multilingual students in mind and really centering their, their needs and strengths. Yeah, um, I think when I, when I started my career as a teacher, um, and I think the reason why I ended up choosing the TESOL certification was because of my own experience. Um, I, I came to America in seventh grade knowing English, um, my mom made sure that we tried to speak it as much as we could at home because she always knew that she wanted to come to America. Um, but I think that I was drawing on my own experiences in seventh grade and, you know, that silent period because, and that's why I'm really emphasizing, right? Like honoring home language um, and knowing the home language because, oh my goodness, just learning that, you know, Spanish was not actually the first language of, you know, some of my students, especially from, you know, like my students who speak Quiche or Quechua, um, that was that was major. Um, and that was an education for me because I knew nothing about it. So it was also vulnerability and education on my part. But um, to go back to your question, uh, a particular lesson or strategy or story, um, there's, I, I, well, I've been doing, I don't know, I think, well, you know this, um, but I've been doing more, uh, more work around maps um, because I've, I've gotten really international geographic education. Um, I actually got their fellowship, which was really exciting. So um, I got the Grosvenor Teacher Fellowship and got to go to Antarctica. Um, and so bringing that to our students has been so phenomenal. Um, but more than just learning about Antarctica, and that was a whole thing in and of itself, was just rethinking geography and place and space, especially in the context of our multilingual learners. Um, again, thinking of funds of knowledge, thinking of what strengths they bring, um, and finding a way to create a mini maps unit um, that looked at maps, but also perspective and bias, um, starting very simply allowing space for home language and um, you know, multiple literacies where there was a lot of drawing, a lot of speaking, um, 
and not, <laughs> I did not start with any like kind of essay prompts or anything like that, although there is a time and place for that. But uh, that, that was a really cool experience. And I do particularly remember the first time doing it, the mini maps unit. Um, it covered all the maps on the walls. Were you there for this? No, I don't think I so. I don't think so. After, yeah. Um, so I had the traditional standardized, widely accepted, yet highly problematic Mercator projection. <laughs> um, and then also the golf heaters and also an upside down one. I've been trying to get my hand on an Asia-centric map as well. Um, but yeah, so having students just first draw what the world map what they think it looks like to them. Um, and that was really cool because it was a space for drawing. Some students ended up using a lot more language um, in the map, so they were labeling things. Other kids were not, um, and that was also completely fine. But then allowing them to, in, at first in small groups and pairs, um, explain it to each other and then out loud with the whole class, um, like share their surprised moments, um, their shocks, their um, interesting comments. Um, and then from there, you know, learning more about language of geography. So there's the vocabulary input, um, but it's grounded in something that we've already started. Um, and also building on what they know, because I didn't know, um, and that's why I kind of wanted to start with this, curious where in their home countries, um, how was geography taught there? And for some of our students, um, it was an Asia-centric map. Right, um, and it was also cool to see which places were bigger, which places were completely forgotten. You know, <laughs> um, everyone remembered Antarctica because they kept talking about it for years. <laughs> um, but yeah, slowly starting from there and moving from you know the conversation eventually to the written. And it was really great where at the end when we were writing about imperialism and doing an essay on imperialism. Um, students circling back to this unit opener, um, I guess a hook mini, mini unit, um, and especially in their conclusion, the so what um, part, because I think that's the hardest thing to teach a student, um, even myself as a grad student, the so what part. Um, but yeah, that was, that, was really, that was really a fun unit that I could share that um, I think was really it, it, it was high challenge because you're really challenging the students to think critically when you start introducing perspective and bias, why certain maps are the way they are. And then looking at different maps, we eventually looked um, at you know physical maps, political maps, um, topological maps, uh, climate maps, but then also from different places and across different time periods, so. That was, that was pretty neat um, while also making it accessible. That is an amazing unit. I saw, I think I was there when you started doing map units, but I did not see the evolution to that point. That sounds phenomenal. And I would encourage any listener who teaches social studies to do that unit because I think there's so much that you're teaching there. You're embedding criticality, you're embedding intellect, you're starting where students are and you're inviting them to share their brilliance and and really educate each other and ourselves as as teachers being able to learn from students in that way i think is just 
so profound. Um, and I also think it's a great example of, I talk a lot about co-constructing curriculum with students. And so while you were there for my wild experimentation of like design your own unit and do that for an entire semester, like that is one extreme. This is also an example of how, you know, students can co-create the lesson, like on a lesson level, I'm sure having different students in the class for that lesson produced different results from, from class to class and that conversation was varied. And so I think for educators or leaders supporting educators to co-construct curriculum with, with students, this is a great example of one point on that continuum where it is incredibly valuable and also doesn't take like a ton of you know front end work of like, okay, which what do students know already and identifying that going in, like you got to just learn that with them through the activity and during the lesson. So I think that's a very doable thing that teachers could put into their practice for teaching geography and so powerful. I'll also just quickly add that it's also yeah. a way of decolonizing it, right? Because you're, you're looking at geography and, and politics and history so critically. Um, and it is, it is anti-racist work too, because you're questioning who made the Mercator projection, right? Like, why is Africa this size? Why is Australia here? Where is, where is, why is Europe so massive, right? So, um, looking at that, identifying the biases of the creators and having students come to those conclusions is really empowering. So I'll just throw that out there too in the spirit of what we were talking about earlier as well. So, yeah. I think that's another great example. I think one of the things um, we, I've been talking to educators who teach in rural areas that are predominantly filled with white students in their classes as well. Sometimes they will hear an example like that and they'll say, well, we can't do that because we have this like mono-racial, mono-cultural, mono-linguistic like, you know, experience. But I think this is a perfect example of how you would slightly adapt this and still teach exactly the principles that you're trying to get across, right? Like looking at who created each of these maps and having that critical lens and having the lens of decolonization when we look at just things in our sphere of education is something you can absolutely do regardless of who is in your class. Um, I mean, you could also jump on a Zoom call with another class, like Kalut's class or something, you know, to to share ideas that maybe aren't present in your classroom. But I think that's that's a wonderful emphasis that you just added because I think that's something everyone can do regardless of who is sitting in your classroom, whether that be your physical classroom or your digital classroom now. But um, as we kind of move to close out a bit, I'm curious, are there resources that you have come across that you finds um, to be really helpful in thinking through this or that you would recommend instructional leaders read or, you know, things that would help them learn more about multilingual education and what they could do for students? Yeah, I um, I think that this is something where like when I was thinking also, I mean, yeah, every time I have a question, I'm like, wait, and then it takes like an hour to come up with an answer. But um, I have been trying, I think that's why I ended up pursuing this other graduate degree is because I wanted resources and I, I, I kept running into roadblocks. Like I couldn't find exactly what I was looking for um, with multilingual education because a lot of what's out there still disadvantages them as English language learners. Um, and as much as we try to celebrate them, um, and to celebrate and honor and, you know, empower, well, they're already empowered, you know, we just, they have voices, right? Like, we just need to be listening more. But 
I kept getting, I kept hitting roadblocks. So I think that's why I pursued, I mean, I know that's why I pursued this degree in international education and development, focusing on languages, literacies, and cultures, because I will admit that I was really intimidated by scholarly work. Um, so I was like, oh gosh, like, <laughs> how do I, where is my entrance into this? How do I fit? Where do I start? Um, but with uh, comparative education and also linguistic anthropology, I've come across so many fantastic articles. And that's something that I would really recommend to educators interested in multilingual education is don't be afraid of the scholarly work. Um, we know a lot as educators, right? Like researchers will come to us when conducting work. Um, so, you know, I think, I think we, there's such a great divide between um, theory and practice. And I think we need to close that gap a little bit more. So a lot of the recommendations that I do have, um, you know, the canon of linguistic anthropology or, or um, critical pedagogy, specifically focusing on multilingual education is in scholarly work. So again, um, you know, whether it's Carol Benson or Nelson Flores over at UPenn, um, Nancy Hornberger, a lot of their work is phenomenal and you know, it's something that I think we as educators can read and then, and then think about in our own practice. So that's kind of where I have been heading to get more um, because I, yeah, I just kept hitting roadblocks. So don't be intimidated or afraid, read it and question it as we all should um, because that's important. And that's, that's part of, you know, why people read and write and publish and all of that. Oh, I love that recommendation. Thank you. And I just want to kind of summarize, we've talked about so many things today. So we've talked about the mindset shift required, the multilingual habitus that we want to really frame our thinking around and, and start shifting from that problematic language of, you know, problematizing students for, for not having English fluency and seeing that strengths-based multilingual learner um, kind of lens as we look at our students. We want to um, really do the personal work, the collective work as, as a group. I know you shared some great strategies for that. We also want to make sure that we're at the policy level. And so teachers have representation there and multilingual people have representation there as well. Um, getting to know your students and really making sure that students are able to use their home language and are encouraged to use their home language as well as multiple literacies. And so we're not just putting pen to paper. Um, and also you gave some great examples of ways to really look at perspective and bias to decolonize the curriculum using your geography maps unit. Um, and, and that recommendation that we should always be looking critically at, at the theory and, and the scholarly work. And also maybe I, I took from that as well, turning to other educators and just seeing what's working well in practice and even learning from our students and families what can be done in classes. So there's so much richness in this, in this conversation that I'm curious if you could just recommend one place to start. So one next step that an educator or an educational leader um, could take to really live in alignment with that um, valuing of multilingual learners, that idea of rooting our work in equity and justice um, and really be the best educators that they can be to, to enable all students to thrive. What would that one next step be? Oh man, that's tough. But you also did a phenomenal summary. Um, I have to, I have to tell you, uh, the one next step, and I'm going to make this next step because I feel like there's so much great work out there, but I, I want to make it, I want to make it like a language slanted next step. Um, I think, I think it is kind, 
this is so tough. Um, but because it's kind of two pronged, right? I think it's questioning what we like our language use and like language practices and also better learning our students. So challenging these preconceived notions, like getting to know, doing, doing a language history. Um, maybe that, maybe I could say that doing a language history, um, learning history for ourselves and for our students, because um, this reminds me of like, you know, how you asked me to introduce myself and there was kind of a narrative to it. Um, everyone has a story and we hear so many cool stories about, you know, people's lives and, you know, uh, maybe it's like had the story, how did they come here to America or, you know, uh, where, how did you end up in this field of study? But people have language histories and language stories that are often forgotten. Like maybe it becomes, um, maybe it becomes like a sentence in an introduction or in a biography, right? Like, and I speak this and that and that, or, you know, but, but that is, it's minimizing so much when, um, like we're talking about literacies, like, well, I know how to read and write in this, but it's a, it's different from my home language or, you know, um, I, I, you know, I went, I was like my neighbors, you know, maybe spoke this one language, like my Italian neighbors. And I always heard like this one variety. Um, but thinking more deeply about that, I think, um, for ourselves and for our students, because um, I think language is a big part of who we are and how we express ourselves. Um, and so, so not minimizing language um, and thinking of it more critically, more deeply, and, and just figuring out the nuances will help us in our, in our steps of, you know, embarking on this mind shift. That's awesome. And you've been sharing so much, I think, throughout the, this session of just things that you've been learning yourself, like, and, and been very self-reflective about that. So I think that's great just to kind of highlight, we're all learning and growing constantly. And the best thing we can do is really commit to that learning and growth. And I, I'm just curious if there's something that you haven't shared that you're um, really, that you've been working on or learning more about or thinking more about lately, um, is there, is there something else that you wanted to kind of share or highlight or, or highlight even your own work that, you know, the research that, that you're doing um, so that other leaders can just be aware of that and, and learn from you? Um, well, now, you know, teaching in the time of coronavirus has been on my mind a lot lately, obviously. Um, it's had its challenges to say the least. Um, but one thing I've been looking at and thinking about a little more deeply is about education and emergencies. Um, and how, you know, there's so much work being done now, um, but not just now, but has been done for, for so long on um, refugee and IDP, which is internally displaced persons, um, their education for various reasons, whether it's war, conflict, natural disasters, you know, um, and whether it is something acute, something ongoing or you know, something protracted over long periods of time, but there are people out there who have been putting in the work um, for decades now. Um, and there's so much literature out there. Um, there's a, a network called the Interagency Network for Education and Emergencies, uh, and they do 
fantastic work and have published so much um, for teachers, educators, um, researchers, and I think it's worth exploring um, because, you know, education in emergencies is not a new thing. Um, and it's been around for a while. And, you know, the Western world has kind of been like the epitomized, like, let's look up to them and see what they're doing, right? But now I think we need to be listening a little bit more. Um, so, you know, challenging the dominance and the hegemony and all that. So uh, that's kind of what's been on my mind. And I just would maybe throw that out there. Um, that's a cool network to check out, the Interagency Network for Education and Emergencies, if anyone's interested. I can also drop a link to that in the show notes for this episode so that people can just click on it and they don't have to do a Google search. That was a, a mouthful. I was like, yeah, let me make sure I got that down. So I will drop a link in the show notes. Um, and then I think just a final piece, like I am constantly, I learned so much from you in, in this episode alone, but I am constantly learning from, from you. And I would hope that listeners have learned a lot from this episode as well and, and are interested in continuing to learn from you. So I'm interested in, you know, where learners might connect with you or learn more about you on either social media or, you know, wherever it would be that you would direct them to do that. Because I think you, have, you just have so much brilliance to share and I want to make sure people are, are connected with that. Yeah. Um, I am, I am a little, uh, social media shy, but I do have a Twitter. <laughs> That's my one vice. Um, so, uh, I, I can also like share that with you, but it's, um, I guess you put twitter.com slash, or I guess the handle, right? That's what we're looking for. <laughs> I am not the most social media savvy, but um, it's my last name and then the first three letters of my first. So it's Kameiko, Q-U-M-E-I-K-H-O. I almost forgot how to spell my name. Um, but yeah, if people want to follow me, um, I'm always up for chats and learning. Um, and yeah, I really look forward to, to any of that, any and all of it. Awesome. Thank you so much, Clea. I just really appreciate you being here and taking the time because you are super busy with a full-time job and a full-time like research and all the things that you're doing in grad school. And so I really appreciate you and I appreciate all of the wisdom that you shared today. So thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you so much, Lindsay. You honestly inspired me to go back to school. I, for all the listeners out there, I've never met a person like Lindsay, you dissertating while teaching full-time. Just, I just thought like, you know what? I can do this. And so, um, yeah, you inspire me every single day. And, you know, when the going gets tough, I'm like, I can do this, you know, and I think of you. So thank you for having me on here. And thank you. And I, I hope, you know, this, you know, I just, I would wish you the best. So thank you so much, Lindsay. Thank you, Kalud. See, this is why she's my marigold. This is amazing. <laughs> Thanks for listening, amazing educators. If you loved this episode, you can share it on social media and tag me at Lindsay Beth Lyons or leave a review of the show so leaders like you will be more likely to find it. To continue the conversation, you can head over to our Time for Teachership Facebook group and join our community of educational visionaries. Until next time, leaders, continue to think big, act brave, and be your best self. Mm -hmm.